consuming too much of anything is going to make you unhealthy. You know, too much water, you drown. Too much chocolate, you get sick. It's the same thing on any level. And I think the more that we can start to really understand overconsumption makes you sick, whether it's physically, spiritually, or mentally, the more we're going to start to reanalyze and reassess what we're putting into our minds and our bodies and our souls, because it's not working for anyone right now the way that we're doing it here. Hey, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. This week, we meet Barrett Powell. Barrett is a life coach, an LGBTQ plus advocate, and an influencer. Barrett grew up on Long Island and moved to New York City to attend New York University. He graduated from NYU with a Bachelor of Science in Communication, Culture, and Media, with a double minor in Political Science and Producing. On his popular social media channels, Barrett talks in depth about politics, body positivity, love, dating, fitness, and much, much more. I really hope you love this episode as much as I did. Barrett is a wonderful person and I learned a lot from talking to him. I know you will too. Please don't forget to comment, like and share if you enjoy this episode. And if you're on iTunes, please do leave us a review. It really helps get the message out there. So let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Barrett. It's uh, great to sit down and talk to you again. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Hey, how's it going? I'm Barrett Paul. I come from a very honest and true place and I've heard no for a long time. I've been told I shouldn't do what I want to do. I couldn't be who I wanted to be and that I shouldn't love who I wanted to love. Well, I'm here to tell you that they were all wrong. So before we dive into all the things that you're doing with your life today, um, we always like to start by going back in time and hearing our guests' plant-based or vegan story. How did you discover this lifestyle and where did it all begin for you? This whole journey uh, started for me in 2016 when I was at a past boyfriend's house and we were you know, trying to be educational and smart. And we were like, let's watch something new. And I was like, well, why don't we watch this food documentary called Cowspiracy on Netflix? And we watched the whole thing and it finished and we looked at each other and we said, we can never eat meat again. Fast forward uh, like over four years later, I have stuck to those principles. He fell off once we broke up, but it was something that just was truly awoken within me that I knew I could not go back to or be a part of in terms of the problems that arise from factory farming and the animal industry that is part of agriculture and climate change in many ways. Hey guys, what's going on? I'm going to be trying to do a different type of video today. As you can see in front of me, this is not what I normally work with. However, I feel like this was a video that was a long time overdue. You guys have been asking me across all my social media platforms what it is exactly that I eat to maintain my healthy, fit, and pretty trim body if I do say so myself. And this is exactly what I buy on a normal shopping spree. I don't know if this is what you would call a food haul, but that's what we're going to go with. As you can see in front of me, it's a lot of fruits and vegetables and some other products that you guys may or may not know, and I'm happy and excited to introduce you guys to some of my favorite new things. And as a lot of you may or may not know, I gave up meat two years ago, so no chicken, no steak, no duck, no pork, none of it. And I wasn't a huge meat eater, but I did eat a fair bit. However. Once I got really into the nitty gritty of what meat is to our ecosystem and to our bodies and to sustainability, I just couldn't support the meat industry anymore. 
So the the food culture that you grew grew up in, um, tell us about that. Where did you grow up, and 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 what kind of food were was around you was around you as a child? So growing up, um, I'm from Long Island, New York. For anyone that doesn't know, that's just that little tiny island off of uh, Manhattan, towards the east. And growing up, I was very healthy. My parents did a really great job, I think, introducing us to healthy foods at a young age. I remember being in a supermarket when I was really young and asking my mom for Brussels sprouts. And this older gentleman looked at my mom with like the biggest eyes and went, excuse me, did he just ask for Brussels sprouts? And my mom laughed and said, yes. And he was like astonished. I wasn't allowed to have soda till I was probably around like nine or 10. And in general, uh, health and wellness was just kind of like second nature in my home. We ate a lot of vegetables and fruits and healthy foods. But even as a kid, I remember my family, you know, having steak dinner some nights and me being like, I don't want steak and them cooking me chicken separately. So I always had kind of a different palate than a lot of my family members or just the people around me. And I wasn't sure exactly why. But I think as I got older, I realized I was just a big fan of animals and then learning all the things I have throughout the years, you know, about climate change, animal well-being, our bodies. It just really aligns with my ethos and principles. So you grew up um, in a Jewish family. Were your family practicing? No, my family's not practicing at all. We were Jewish, you know, like that ish part, (laughs) um, which I always think is kind of funny. We celebrated like the big holidays just because, you know, they were culturally fun and festive and we you know the neighbor celebrated christmas so we did hanukkah but we also did christmas so that we weren't the only you know kids in the area that didn't get to have santa because my parents knew i'd probably ruin it for everyone and so the reason i ask is you know i'm always interested in the spiritual connection uh, of our guests and their sort of their their relationship with food because religion spirituality culture and food they're all intertwined and our attitudes towards food certain types of foods are entwined aren't they you know in, in america there's this tradition to sit down uh, and eat uh, turkey at christmas and also thanksgiving as well um, it's the same here in the UK. And I'm always interested as to people's sort of spiritual backgrounds when it comes to food, especially eating animals, because all, as you know, all the world religions teach compassion, kindness, love. These ideals and these philosophies are at the center of all religions, but yet many spiritual leaders still continue to eat animals and and teach that eating animals is normal and it's necessary and that we have to do it and it's part of our culture. I don't know if any of our listeners have watched A Prayer for Compassion or if you've seen A Prayer for Compassion yet, but it's a beautiful film that really dives deeply into this relationship between spirituality and food and really begs, asks a big question. Why, as religious people or spiritual people, do we continue to eat animals and kill animals when it's not necessary that we live in a world where, if we're fortunate to live in the Western world, many of us do have access to supermarkets that are brimming with fruits and vegetables and legumes and nuts and seeds. So... Yeah, I mean, just obviously your immediate family wasn't practicing, but was your extended family uh, spiritual or did they go to the synagogue and, and, and was there any um, anyone in your family? Because I do know and I have been told but that, you know, there are very, what should I say, religious or Jewish people who are very kind of connected into their religion, very ascetic, I think the word is, where your religious beliefs are very, very strong. And there's a lot of like vegetarianism in that part of the Jewish culture. I don't know if you know much about that. Yeah. So my immediate family was very much just like the insular mom, dad, my siblings. We weren't very close to my extended family, but I grew up with a lot of animals. We had 12 dogs. 
Um, wow. Yeah, and that, not like throughout the years, but at one point. Um, and then we had 10 birds and geckos and frogs and hamsters and rabbits. And so animals were always very much a part of our life. And there was very much a connectedness to them on like a very, very, yeah, just close relationship, you know? As I got older, though, and I wanted to learn more about my religion as I've studied, you know, many different religions trying to make sense of the world, I found myself in a Jewish fraternity in college. And in that is where I really started to learn more about Judaism and, you know, the different ideas behind kosher and not, you know, mixing meat and dairy and how the animal had to be slaughtered in a very, um, or not in a very, but a more humane way that you know, it was done with a blessing and very intentional and gratitude. So I definitely understand the spirituality in food, especially within Judaism. Um, but as a whole, I still think very much like you, that there is no need to consume animals. And that it, if anything brings us higher spiritually to not be ingesting something that is dead. You know, one of the things I heard that has always stuck with me is how does eating something that is dead supposed to make you feel more alive and i just that really resonated with me it's a big question isn't it and i think you know i ask myself this all the time why was someone who i can i do still consider myself when i was a child very sensitive very emotional loved animals i had pet rats and cats and ducks and chickens and geese and i loved them and i used to sit and look and watch them uh you know go about their days and i, I would always sit and wonder what they were thinking what they were dreaming and my dogs were lying on the floor with the legs twitching i would always think what are they dreaming about and i knew that they were sentient but then you know i would sit down and eat uh, steak or chicken or beef. And, and I just cannot for the life of me understand why I did not make that connection. But I think ultimately it all comes down to education. We, we look around us as children and we look to our parents, to our rabbis, to our priests, to our teachers and the people around us for guidance. And, and when everyone around us is eating meat and killing animals and telling us that it's normal, we just accept it. Most of us, there are obviously a few of us who, few humans who, you know, who won't stand for it at like age three or four and they're throwing the meat off the plate and crying and screaming and saying, no, I will not eat, I will yeah. not eat my friends. <laughs> um, and, you know, and these people are definitely special people, you know, outliers, I think, in the human human race because we are as creatures conditioned to follow the tribe. We, we, I think, by our very genetics, we stick with what everyone else does. Definitely. Um, but this is where, you know, being in a minority, being in the LGBTQ plus community, both of us, you know, I think this gives us a slight, not not edge is not the right word, but when you are already an outsider um, in, in one way, being vegan is a no brainer. It's sort of, to me, it's like, oh, you know, I've re experienced prejudice my whole life. I'm, I'm not really that worried about swimming against the current by quitting eating animals. But growing up, you know, tell me a little bit more about your, your childhood and your relationship sort of with food and, and, and also your, your understanding of sort of health and wellness, because it seems to be something that you just grew up around. How did it evolve uh, as you got older? And how did you, you know, obviously, you, you culminated in you watching Cowspiracy, but have you always had a passion for food and nutrition and, and, and eating well? Yeah, you know, I started competitive swimming when I was nine years old. Swimming is all about, you know, maximum efficiency. You're using every muscle in your body and you are fueling it um, with certain foods. And so I was always very aware of, you know, the fuel I put into my body was going to convert into actual fuel and energy and help me swim at a maximum efficiency. 
And as someone that was super competitive with it, you know, I was ranked nationally. I went to school to swim uh, by school. I mean, university and you couldn't eat crap and expect to jump in the pool and feel fine and not get cramps and not feel bloated and not be able to, you know, swim as fast as you wanted to without feeling nauseous and, and crappy. Um, and so for me, the, the link between food and health and wellness was very prevalent at a very early age. And then as I've gotten older and found myself in fitness professionally at one point, and now I'm a life coach that focuses on mind, body, soul, it's just so apparent that everything is intertwined and linked. And, you know, going back to the idea of being LGBTQ and also standing as an like outlier or outsider when it comes to being you know, forward thinking about the ways to best take care of ourselves and ultimately the planet. Um, Cause that's, I think what it means to honor yourself um, or honor the planet is to take care of yourself as well. And the more that we really think about the connectedness of everything, you know, our bodies, the fuel we put into them, where is that fuel coming from? How is that fuel made? It starts to be this journey of understanding and learning that you can't overlook anything anymore you know the the factories that are used are running with a ton of really bad fuel to make the food that becomes fuel for our bodies and so of course climate change is going to be an issue when you look at our food and it's not just the animals but it's the production of all of that and you know you often get into these long connected lines. And sometimes people are like, well, you're now you're just talking about everything. I'm like, but that's the point. Everything is connected. And I think for some reason at a very early age, I kind of understood this and I had a different experience than I think most children or a lot of people at six years old, my mom got very sick and she laid in bed for seven years in my head, just dying. And what we didn't realize back then, because we didn't have the language or the understanding is that she was suffering from postpartum depression, but at six years old, you don't understand that. And so even just watching her be not healthy made me want to be even healthier so I could help more at home and so that I could be in some ways this third parent and help my family get through the difficult things that we were going through. And we faced a lot of different struggles when it came to finances. I was evicted from every home I grew up in, which was four homes. And it may not seem like food is connected with that, but when you are aware of everything, including, you know, like how much this cost or that cost and like what's going to keep us healthy so we don't have to go to the doctor, which then prevents us from getting sick, you start to look at these things more and more. And I think a lot of Western specifically, I can't speak for all of the West, but American culture wants to treat symptoms and not look at what's at the core and how do we fix these things before they're actually problems. Growing up in America, the United States has a huge problem with food. Uh, its relationships with food is, the, the word dysfunctional doesn't really come close to describing the no, problem. No, it's hyper disconnected. It, it is. And, you know, not only issues around food security, but also uh, the kinds of foods that people are have access to. What was it like growing up in a culture where there is just so much junk food and so much temptation to, to, to reach for food that is so bad for you and so unhealthy and so loaded with artificial colors and preservatives and, you know, high fructose corn syrup? I mean, I, were you, I, mean I, I assume there was a lot of obesity in your peer group or, you know, uh, how has the, that relationship with food affected the people around you other than your, your immediate family? So I think this is a really interesting point in the conversation because I actually grew up with a lot of people that were, I guess, you know, very athletic and well-rounded. And so we didn't have a ton of obesity in my 
like immediate peripheral. My mom was overweight. My dad was in fairly good shape, but um, has since become overweight. Nothing crazy, but again, definitely to the capacity that they are not fully as healthy as they should be. But I think that has a lot to do with the socioeconomics that my parents placed us in. You know, we couldn't afford to be essentially in the towns I grew up in, but they made it work in different ways. And I think that, you know, the higher up you go in terms of socioeconomics, the more access you have to knowledge and then the the more access you have to healthier foods. And that was something that I, I, I didn't think much of as a kid, but looking back now, it's like, you know, it was a very white neighborhood and it was very upper middle class as a majority. A lot of people played sports after school because that was something that was going to help you get into college. And you went to college so that you could get a good job. And it was just, again, this very, very white centric way of going through life and having access and ease to these things, because that's what we've been learning has been programmed here in America and in other parts of the world. And then, you know, I remember the first time my parents let me have McDonald's or some sort of fast food and how exciting it was because you got a happy meal and you got a toy in the happy meal. And, you know, these companies know exactly who they're marketing to. They, I think it's the average age of like the target demographic for TV commercials is like three years old because these companies know that once they have you at a young age, you're addicted and you're hooked to whatever crap they're selling you. And whether that's food or toys, they know how to get in there to your psyche and make you want to be a part of this, we'll call it a community. Um, And I think that's really what fast food was so genius at doing in a very evil genius way is going like, look, you get a happy meal. It's called a happy meal. It's a happy thing. And you get a toy. Here's a reward for eating this crap food that we shouldn't be giving to you at all. And because your parents haven't let you have it, but all your friends' parents have let their kids have it, you're going to really work on your mom and dad as much as you can so that you can get that crappy food inside of you. It's a kind of mind control when you think about it. Totally. It's this, it's, it's, you know, because, you know, the way these messages are delivered to children is over the television. When I, and obviously billboards outside schools, and, and I don't know what the laws are like in the US, but in the UK, there are no billboards advertising uh, junk food to children. There are no TV ads that junk ad, advertise junk food to children. I, whenever I come to America, I'm horrified by the advertising that I see on television, predominantly for pharmaceuticals, which yeah. we could probably have spend a whole podcast talking yeah. about the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. but you know, how does it, again, another quite big question, but how does it feel growing up in what often must feel like a society or growing up, you're, you know, you're still, we're all still growing up really. Um, what is it? How does it feel to live in a society where it kind of feels like everything is trying to take your money or take your health or, you know, I just felt that whenever I went to America, there's, there's sort of so much pressure in so many ways to, to keep it together. Um, I mean, do you ever feel that being in, in the US? Of course. You know, I think it's something that you don't realize until you're older and you look back with, you know, fresh, new, clear eyes. As a kid, it's just what you know and it's everything around you. And, and until you travel outside of the US, you don't know any different. And, you know, I didn't get to travel outside of the country because of financial means until I was in university and I studied abroad in Paris. And I just remember thinking like how different everything was, including the food. You know, I was lactose intolerant, I am lactose intolerant, but I tried, you know, dairy products in, in France and it didn't upset my stomach the same way because the process that it goes through is different. And it was just like a really big learning moment. But I think to really answer that larger question is, 
you know, American culture is all about capitalism and it's about growth and it's about never feeling satisfied. And I remember being a kid and being quite upset with my parents that our house wasn't as big as my friends and that we didn't have the newest cars and we didn't have the newest, nicest, flashiest this or that, and that we didn't get to go to this restaurant or that, because that's what you are programmed to think is where your value comes from. And I'm really grateful that I've been shaken and woken up many times throughout my life because of you know family drama, trauma, uh, health, that it's not the key to anything in life and that you're going to feel probably worse the more you try to consume because consuming too much of anything is going to make you unhealthy. You know, too much water, you drown. Too much chocolate, you get sick. It's the same thing on any level. And I think the more that we can start to really understand overconsumption makes you sick, whether it's physically, spiritually, or mentally, the more we're going to start to reanalyze and reassess what we're putting into our minds and our bodies and our souls, because it's not working for anyone right now, the way that we're doing it here. And that that's how we end up with these leaders that are kind of the epitome of cheap, you know, like not, not to get too political, but I think we're watching the world, especially my own country, America, sit at the height of like a reality TV show, but it's our politics. And I think that this is a symptom, again, of just a lot of unhealthy behaviors being programmed into us starting a long, long time ago. I mean, before my parents, probably. Mm, it is. It's cause and effect or the law of karma. Uh, things that have, you know, decisions and choices made by previous generations are now playing out in the world around us. I don't know if you've ever seen the show shows Black Mirror by of Charlie course. Brooker, but Black Black Mirror, um, if, if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix and it's a dystopian uh, futuristic TV series, which is, you know, dystopian futures often feel like, you know, totally different parallel universes. But Black Mirror is just a few inches away, just a few sort of short spaces spaces away from from today's world and every day when I open the news I I feel like we are living in this dystopian story where we don't know what's going to happen next there's there's some horror that is going to um, come into our lives any minute you know whether it's a, a pandemic or an asteroid or a, some crazy <laughs> reality tv star Completely. who's now running the one of the most powerful countries in the world and it really teaches you that you don't what what's i've learned really over the last few years is that you never know what's coming next in life uh, and that you really should never uh, just assume that everything is in the bag and that you should you know put your feet up and just take life as it comes. But going going back in time a bit, you know, to your early years, you you were a competitive swimmer, right? And you you know you were in competitive sport. What was that? What was that like? Did you was there a lot of pressure put on you as a young man? And 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 how did you sort of deal with that? Because we do know that you know mental health uh, for young men in the world today is a is a is a is a real challenge because men by nature don't really like to talk about their feelings. They don't really talk or open up when they're struggling. Did you struggle with with that, or did you take it in your stride? How was your foray into the competitive sport world? Mental health, specifically with you know the focus being on men, is something that I've dove deeper into over the past couple of years because I just realized it's something so many of us have not been given the safe space to talk about. And I'm really grateful that I did have safe space to talk about my feelings and that I was way more sensitive at a young age. I think my mother getting sick opened me up to just understanding that life is not always going to be great and rainbows and happy. And because of that, I was definitely just more sensitive. And then, 
you couple that with being, you know, a little LGBT kid and you're already kind of just different than your peers around you and going into a competitive sport as that type of kid made me, you know, a target for many reasons. And then I was good at it, which made me even more of a target because it was, well, we don't want to let this little gay kid beat us in the pool. So we're going to make you feel shitty outside of the pool. And that was kind of my whole childhood is very much just being bullied for being different, even though I was just kind and sensitive and I cared about people and things. It, it never stopped me from being that way, but I definitely had a lot of days where I would just go home and cry by myself. And you know, some days I would tell my parents what would happen and other days I wouldn't because I didn't want to just feel like a burden every day. And I think that the more I analyze all of this and look back and the more insight I get from other people, the more I realize a lot of that mean-spiritedness was coming from people who were projecting their own insecurities and problems at home and didn't know how to positively express their feelings in a healthy way. And I think that sports are a great outlet for this in many ways because it's a place to you know, get feelings out, but it still needs to be discussed. And there's still a big problem with toxic masculinity within the sports culture as a whole. It's important to look at wanting that other body, that that one that we idealize or idolize. And for me, it was always something that was more muscular, taller, you know, this like giant hunky man, which is not how I've ever felt. Um, It's maybe how I've been perceived in some capacities, but it's not ever been the way I actually feel inside. I've always kind of just felt like a scrawny 12 year old with braces and glasses and awkward. And I understand that's not what I look like anymore, but that is who I feel like inside. And the more that we start to just say, I'm grateful for my body's ability to do the things that it can do and the things that it can't do because that's a lesson in itself, the more we're going to be kind to this specific body right now. And that is of the chief importance as we learn to fully accept ourselves, mind, body, and soul. Do you you think, though, that this competitive nature of sport and business and economics is what breeds the 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 toxic nature of our society this this constant desire to teach our children to be better to be bigger to be stronger than everybody else rather than teaching our children to be collaborative to support each other to build together rather than to sort of build faster than everybody else i i just have a theory that you know competitive sports even though it's a great outlet for many men and women it, it does feed into this narrative that to be um happy to be uh, on top you have to be better than everybody else and that to be a success you have to get to the top screw everybody else get to the top first and step on everyone on the way up i believe that if we can change the way we educate our children and 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 train them in compassion and kindness and collaboration we would have a happier healthier kinder more more um developed society i believe the reason western society is in the mess that it is is because we've we've built our entire civilization over the last hundred years on competition uh, and not collaboration. And that collaboration and kindness and gentleness is seen as uh, a weakness. There's um, 
a study I've cited a couple of times on this podcast. So apologies if anyone's heard this story already, but um, there was a study done in the fifties of like, you know, hundreds, like you know, over 5,000 children or something like that. And they were given a list of qualities that they could aspire to be like. And in the fifties, the number one quality that children aspire to be like was kind and be, and have kindness as their number one quality. They did the study again a few years ago in this last, you know, few, few this last decade. And the number one quality that children wanted was to be famous. Yeah. It's sad, but it really tells you how the world and how children and how society has fundamentally shifted away from being outwardly focused of being about others and supporting and growth and connection to inwardly focused to the selfish, fearful, um, me, me, me society, which we have found ourselves in. And social media is, is a hu- plays a huge role in that. Now, you obviously use social media for many things, and it, and it's part of your advocacy in, in in LGBT issues and talking about gender and society. But how how for you has society, has the social media sort of evolved this relationship with with yourself and with you know society? Because obviously, it gives us access to tens of thousands of people instantly in it, and it you know it's 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 a bit of a double edged sword. <laughs> Tell us about your relationship with it. <laughs> Well, I want to go back to the thing you were just talking about with competition really quickly, because I completely agree with everything you said. And I think that while we talk about, you know, being within the LGBTQ space as well as you and I both are, I also think it's what creates a lot of segregation within the the communities that exist within that beautiful, you know, LGBTQIA plus world. And it's all about just being better than each other. And it's what stopped us from being allies within our own communities to each other? And I, I really hope to push more people to look at the fact that we should all just be grateful to be together and that we don't need to be better than someone else to get ahead. And that when we collaborate, we get far, 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 much more rewarding success because it's not just your success. It's the people around you also succeeding, which is your community members. And so I do just kind of want to echo what you said about you know, competition being a problem and that we need to address these things and really look to being kind and compassionate and empathetic as we start to think about success and not just it being like a financial number or a place at the top of a table. Jocks and hunks and twinks and twunks and otters and bears and lions. Oh my, like it's a never ending animal kingdom. But the thing is, by separating ourselves, even if it's just based off of a look, we're making ourselves into subgroups and subcategories that just kind of break up what I think should be a brotherhood. And it's really disheartening because it's something that is truly perpetuating stereotypes that just aren't always true. We have such a struggle with the idea of masculinity because it's juxtaposed against femininity. So if you're not mask, or super hyper-masculine, you must be feminine. But the thing is, no one is just one of those things. We all, gay and straight, walk this fine line between masculine and feminine and, you know, allowing different parts of ourselves to come up at different points. So we really need to just allow those things to be what they are. But then to go back to, you know, the social media thing is, it's for sure this double-edged sword and You know, when I got into social media, I say it was the tail end of the beginning. It was 2011. I had decided to start a blog with a best friend that was supposed to be like a guy-girl fashion blog. 
and there wasn't really that out there at the time. And we thought it would be something fun we did together as just a project to keep us connected as we went off into our own little worlds. And throughout that, I just couldn't find myself talking about fashion because I was going through my first breakup. And I just had all these feelings that were just pouring out of me and I was writing about it. And I'm really grateful to my friend Bianca who, who said, you know what, let's make this into a separate section on the blog. And from there is where I really found my authentic connection with my following. And I very quickly realized that, you know, your image drives more engagement. And so I played into it because I realized there would be something to this tool because that's how I've always thought of social media as a tool. Um, and what we do with that tool is up to us. You know, whether we use it for good or evil is on us. You know, I was 23 when I started using these things. And I didn't think too much about the future. I was, you know, a poor kid trying to make some sort of career happen in the entertainment industry. I saw this tool. I realized my education coupled with my modeling pictures gave me a new kind of perspective that wasn't out there yet. And people responded well to it. And so I played the game, as I often say, you know, years later, sitting here talking to you, I see how I'm a part of the monster that was created that is social media and how it's created another hyper level of narcissism and self-indulgence and how that is not doing anything good for anyone of our age or our generation, but the ones coming up now and how their whole lives are going to be documented and everything's going to be filtered and photoshopped and edited and nothing's going to feel real, especially as we turn more to plastic surgery, which is on the rise. And, you know, these fillers and these lip plumpers and everything else to just poke and prod and take us away from being us. It's something that, Again, I'm really grateful to have social media and to be connected to hundreds of thousands of people in the matter of a second. But I also see the destructive elements that come with it because of the way in which these tools have more or less programmed us to be. And I think that's a, a, a constant conversation around technology is, you know, it's shaping us more than we're shaping it because it's moving so quickly. It's advancing so fast. And the Black Mirror episodes, you know, that are all about these pieces of technology, you know, our phones, which are mini computers in our hands constantly show us where we're heading. And I don't think it's, like you said, very far from where we are. And I often feel like I'm already in it. A lot of the most beautiful people I know from being in the entertainment industry and modeling industry are depressed and miserable because they're looking for validation based off of something that should not be a validating aspect of you. And that's your looks. You can't change the way you look. This is who you were, and unless you go to great lengths and spend lots of money, you are not going to look different. This is your face. It is meant to be your face. It is a beautiful face, whether society says so or not. You need to know that for you. Where, where do you see this technology going? Because as you said, it, it's becoming the genie's out of the bottle. Um, you know, I, I had a brief stint at working at Facebook as a freelancer for about two weeks. Interesting. Um, and, you know, some senior executive in there sat down and said, um, in front of the whole team, listen, we're under no illusions that Mark Zuckerberg has created a monster. 
and this is the exact words of a senior exec at Facebook, they know what they've done. Often many ex-people who, ex-employees of social networks have left, and there are many people who speak uh, at length on how these technologies have been uh, created to, to create addictive behaviors and tap into the primordial parts of the human brain, compulsive behaviors, because obviously image and ego and the way we see ourselves and the way we perceive ourselves and others is deeply entwined with our egos and our kind of very like animalistic parts of our brains. You know, I don't know how we are ever going to get out of it because it's almost like a heroin addiction. It's so addictive and it's so completely consuming. I don't know how our society is ever going to get away from it unless, you know, because our physical anatomy, our brains, is not able to, to, to change fast enough with the speed at which the technology is evolving. Because as you said, technology is evolving at breakneck speed. But the human brain and the human psyche and the human consciousness is, you know, is, is hundreds of thousands, millions of years old. But it, it moves and evolves very, very, very slowly. Um, so I do not understand or know of how we're going to navigate our way out of this mess. Because it's not just ego and image and how we see ourselves, it's politics as well. Social media has been weaponized to allow, as, America, as you Americans call it, bad actors, which I love the expression, bad actors. I only heard that a few years ago. You know, these people who have nefarious and, and, and insidious desire to maintain power um, and social media, which we thought was going to be this tool that would free us all and give us access to free information, is now weaponized. You know, again, putting it back to being in the United States, like how does it feel being in a country where the the, the, the leader clearly won by weaponizing Facebook? I mean, do you, does you feel do you feel angry about that? Do you feel angry about the social networks and their well, is it really an abuse of power? Definitely, there's um a really fantastic documentary called The Great Hack, which I would love for everyone listening to go and watch. It is just an amazing expose on the way Cambridge Analytica. And Facebook used these different social platforms to hijack elections all over the world. And they tested them in smaller countries that a lot of us, you know, Western countries would not care so much about. And then went and did this with Brexit and then the American election where Trump won. And it shows you very, very carefully how all of this was orchestrated and it's not an accident and how we were all played and whether you're, you know, a liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican or whatever you identify as, you have been manipulated in some way, whether or not you realize that we have all been manipulated in some way, you know, and it's so often that, you know, we find this quick quote or tweet or something that pops up in our face and we're like, yes, yes, this is exactly how I feel. I'm going to repost this without checking where it comes from, or even if that person is real and then all of a sudden you're part of the, the problem. And it's something that I know I'm guilty of. I'm sure it's something you can think that you've been guilty of in some way. And it's, it's dangerous. And, you know, the way that social media has been created to work is very similar to the same way drugs have been found to fire off things in our brain. And there's this thing called the DMN, which is known as the default mode network. And that is what kind of triggers things in our brain when it comes to ego. And I'm reading a book called How to Change Your Mind, which is all about psychedelics by Michael Pollan. It's super interesting. And they talk about how that this all lights up the same way we receive likes on our social media feeds. 
the same way we would when we take, you know, like a hit of cocaine or some sort of psychedelic or something else that's, you know, hitting that serotonin, that, that part of our brain that's like, we want more of this. And I, I've been talking more about this on social media, which is quite difficult because, you know, the monster doesn't want you to talk about the monster. So it, it pushes you down in the algorithm but I find that it's important to do what I can, how I can. And this is one of those ways. And the more that we're collectively coming together to talk about these things, the more they're going to have to be forced to change. There's power in numbers. We don't think about technology as being addiction, but technology, our phones, Instagram, they are highly addictive. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I find myself opening up my phone and clicking on that app without even thinking about it. I'm like, how did I end up here? Well, many people do not know that Facebook, who obviously owns Instagram and WhatsApp, are the biggest social networks in the world, they have an entire team of behavioral psychologists that work for them specifically to design addictive behaviors or user experience or UX, as it's called within the apps. Something very simple might be when you go to your messages and you pull the message down to update the message inbox, you do, you often don't always get an instant update. It gives you like one, two, three, four seconds, and then it updates. That actually is just enough to trigger a dopamine response in your brain, um, which creates what's called a Pavlovian response. You know, essentially when you hear the ding or you see the little red symbol on your phone, that creates a Pavlovian response, which gives you that blip, that that boost of, of dopamine, that little hit. And that's why we keep reaching for our phones because our brains are physically addicted to the, the technology. Showing people the Facebook logo um, causes a, a spike in people's dopamine. Just letting them see the logo. Wow. Can you believe that? Wow. You know, f- uh, Facebook was exposed by the Guardian, and now I think Facebook hates the Guardian because the Guardian is always exposing the, you know, the insidious behavior of governments and organizations. But the Guardian exposed Facebook a couple of years ago for manipulating the news feeds of some four hundred thousand people to see if they could alter the behavior. Sorry, alter the mood of the people that they had manipulated their news feeds. And all this documentation was leaked and it showed Facebook could successfully change the way people feel by manipulating what they saw in their news feeds. When you think about the power that these organizations have in their hands, it is absolutely terrifying. Personally, I think that we as citizens who may often feel powerless, we should be pushing our governments to regulate these organizations. There needs to be really strong regulation because they they carry on as, as uh, you know, siphoning billions of pounds out of people's pockets on a daily basis through advertising. But they have carte blanche to be able to do whatever they want. And we need governments around the world to take back the power. However, Facebook is in the pockets of the government as well, because the government use these technologies, or the, the politicians use these technologies to influence the masses. So <laughs> we're in an icky, sticky situation, and we need uh, politicians who can see this stuff and know it. Um, you know, in the UK, going back a few hundred years, politicians would go around with big sacks of money, handing out people, giving people money, asking them to vote for them. That's obviously highly unethical. But what we're doing now is we're using digital technology to do the same, but with people's minds. We're influencing people. So it can be overwhelming, I think, and people can often go, well, what can I do as an individual? But I think ultimately what we have to do is is vote. We've got to vote for people who, who who know this stuff. But also we need to arm ourselves with knowledge. Like you said, watch films like The Great Hack. There's loads of great TED Talks about digital addiction and about how we're sort of feeding the beast. Also use ad blockers, ghostery, all these tools that sort of block all the ads. Because ultimately the less ads that run on these platforms, uh, the less profitable they are. 
And ultimately, this is where we can hit them hard. And also supporting groups like Don't, uh, was it called Stop Hate on Facebook and stuff like that? There are a lot of groups who are pushing large uh, companies to hit Facebook where it hurts and, and pull their ads from Facebook. So there is hope on the horizon. There is. And I think it's important for people to remember, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg did not come into this because he wanted to connect people. Facebook's original purpose was to rate whether or not women were hot or not. That was mm-hmm. it. It was a swipe yeah. feature that you either said this person's hot or this person's not. And then it evolved into this, you know, you get to connect with your grandparents who don't live near you and you can connect to your best friends or people you haven't spoken to in a long time. They don't care if we're connected to these people. We were able to call these people and text these people. Our own laziness has given this monster of a machine the ability to control us because we think we want easy and cheap, but this is how we end up with McDonald's and Uber and Facebook. And anything that's cheap is not going to be healthy for us in the long run. It may feel good. It may taste good. It may seem like it's helping us in the beginning. But what we find often is that that cheapness comes at the cost of a lot of things. And that's our own mental health, spiritual health, physical health, other people's health and well-being in these other countries where they're being, you know, forced into, you know, child slavery to produce cheap clothing or, you know, immigrant workers to go into these slaughterhouses, which in America, you're not even legally allowed to go into because they're that awful. And and, and it seems silly, but again, it's just connecting everything back to each other, I think is so important for people to fully understand. And it's, it is political, but it's also human and part of every single one of us. Absolutely. Never a true word said. Um, Carrying on from sort of politics, and even though people don't like to say it's politics, but in my opinion, everything is politics, whether people like it or not. Growing up a gay man and kind of being again in in a culture which you know, swings wildly between accepting and not accepting you for who you are. How has your sort of sexuality sort of played a role in your life as well? Because it's it's also, a, you know, it's an aspect of who you are. It, it features in your life now. You're very outspoken about it. How does it how does it feature in, in your in your day-to-day life? You know, I haven't gotten emotional over something like this in a while. But something you said and what triggered something in my brain got me a little bit teary-eyed. I just remember feeling so unseen and understood as a kid by so many people where all I wanted was to be accepted. And I think this is something many gay children or LGBTQ kids cannot relate to. And my final straw of just saying enough was I was in Hollywood. I was a model actor. I had a career that many people would have killed for. I was on the fast track to kind of success and my managers and agents sat me down and had a very honest conversation with me. And mind you, these were gay men themselves. And I was not out officially, but they knew. And they said, Barrett, you have two options if you want to make it in this town. You can either start going to swag class, which was a class that they had told me to go to, which was how to become straighter, um, how to drop your voice, how to walk slower, how to just have that swag that we kind of classify as straight men only having, even though it's complete bullshit. You're going to have to stop working at the gay bar your side job is at. You can't hang out with gay people. You can't have a boyfriend. You'll you know, be much more likely to have the success that you dream of. And you'll be able to have you know, a lover meet you on a private island. Or you can come out and you can maybe you know, work some jobs in the industry. You'll never be the gay best friend because you're not weird enough looking. 
and you're too attractive to be the heartthrob and they don't want to intimidate the heartthrob with someone. So you won't be able to play that role. Ultimately, I was basically given an ultimatum. It's either stay in the closet forever and have your dreams come true or come out and be authentic, but basically not have your dreams come true. And I quit Hollywood um, from that moment on and I said, I'm done. And I think everyone was shocked. I ended up deciding to move back to New York after that because I just didn't want to be in that environment. I found it extremely unhealthy. And as more people are coming forward, it is still very much like that, although things are changing and I'm grateful for that. I don't think it's happening fast enough. But I moved back to New York and in kind of what I call my quarter life crisis low, I had a very honest moment with myself where I said I never wanted to perpetuate something that made me feel so poorly to anyone else ever again. And I wrote an open coming out letter that was my first piece as a contributing blogger for the Huffington Post. Um, and that went viral. And to this day, I still credit coming out as being the reason why my career probably went up more than it would have had I not come out. It was scary. You know, you had people who I trusted in the industry telling me not to. No one at the time was really coming out. I mean, I was dating a famous actor who was still in the closet, who's now since out. But it was scary. I, there was just something very fundamentally deep within myself that I think has been there for a very long time and why I never tried to change who I was as a kid as well, that said you cannot do that to yourself. But more than anything, you can't do that to another little boy that's going to one day look up to you. And it's why to this day I'm so loud and proud on social media because I wasn't for so long because I had people telling me not to be. And I think that there is something so important about standing up authentically as who you are and saying, this is who I am. And it's not only okay, it's really, really amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's um, you know it's very familiar in in many ways um, for, to my story and probably many many other um, young gay people who who've experienced similar. And the irony and the interesting thing is is that there are a lot of parallels for many people's stories in the way that the people around them telling them to keep quiet and you know be more straight and stand up straight and you know hide your colourful nature are often other gay people. And isn't it curious that what it feels like is a sort of internalized homophobia that is perpetuating the whole thing? Because Hollywood, by its nature, is 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 often well, we know it's run by gay people, gay and lesbian people, and trans not trans people really, because trans people are struggling to you know to to be seen really for the most part. But it's run by often by gay men. It's very interesting uh, how it's the monster of this culture is perpetuated by the gay men themselves. Now, I have this theory, though, that the reason, um, and I don't know if it's, it's, you know, it's scientifically proven, but I have this theory that homophobia, which, whether it's internalized or from heterosexual people, actually comes from sexism. And that the way our society sees women and sees the feminine, it, it sees women as less than, it sees women as, it degrades women, it puts women down. So for a man to be anything feminine or be like a woman or walk like a woman or talk like, a wo like women or, or be, to be seen by women is less than. And that if we didn't have that sexist, sexism in our society, we would not have homophobia. Homophobia cannot exist if sexism doesn't exist. Because the only reason men are terrified of being anything like women is because of sexism, is because men are terrified 
of being anything anything to do with being feminine because to be feminine is to be weak to be to be a woman is to be fragile and delicate and that men must be strong and tough and that sexism feeds into the homophobia and of course many other problems in our society in the way we view women so i believe that if we are to change our society and remove and cut the poison of homophobia out of our society and transphobia, we have to remove sexism. Sexism is almost gave birth to homophobia and that fear. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about the connections between those two things? You know, I would take it almost one step farther and say that it goes to this idea of feeling threatened because women by pure science and nature are the ones that give us life. And if you look back in history, at Aboriginal or Native cultures, women are often the matriarchs of communities and the ones that run things. I have consistently said that I think the world needs more women leaders because it's more nurturing qualities versus like, again, a, a penis competition of who's is bigger. Sorry for my bluntness, but it just feels quite obvious in today's social and political world. And I think that the more we look at the patriarchy, and thinking about how to heal the patriarchy and this repression that a lot of straight men go through for wanting to be sensitive or for wanting to explore their bodies or for wanting to be something other than this very specific, hard to deliver idea of a man, the more that they're shamed and then repress those things and therefore then repress women or homosexuals or trans people. When we really go back to, I think, the ultimate core issue within all these things. And I'm not going to say that religion is fundamentally bad, but religion has been the place that a lot of people have been given permission to push these dangerous rhetorics onto other people. You know, ultimately homophobia was something that was created and put into the Bible to replace the word deviant. And it's not an accident that that happened. And that was something that happened far more recently than it did. I think more more recently than most people realize. And when we're looking at analyzing all these things, again, from you know educational standpoints, but also anthropologic standpoints, we have to see where these things are stemming from, what is the beginning of all of it, and what was the reason behind it. And unfortunately, and again, I'm not saying everyone within the church is you know a pedophile, because that would be a blanket statement that's completely incorrect, but we're seeing more and more people that are very unhealthy with their own sexual desires, and therefore they were put into these systems and then given leadership roles and then given the permission to preach what was deemed acceptable or unacceptable to congregations of people that would then kind of just blindly follow without doing critical thinking. And I think that's what we are missing today as a whole globally is this idea of critical thinking and not just taking, you know, the leader that we follow to be the end all be all. And that again goes back to conservatives and liberals or however you identify. We all need to be start starting to really look at what is it that we are listening to and then perpetuating. Because the more that we come from this fear-based place, the more that we're going to find ourselves disagreeing with each other when ultimately as a human race, we are far more like one another than we care to really look at today. This is what's missing. And I think it's fallen out of our culture somehow is that 
community and we talked about it before about what we should be doing to pull each other closer rather than pushing each other away creating all these divisions and we see it in the lgbtq plus community we see it in the vegan community uh, and i experienced it in the buddhist community i really do feel like it all goes back to this this desire of, of competition always keeping up with the joneses always trying to be better than everyone else and it's it feeds into our belief system um and i think we need a fundamental shift of our entire belief system because um, I think if we do not make this change and we do not change how we are you know there is there is no future for us as a species because I do feel that we will potentially just implode I mean you know the the microcosm is reflected in the macrocosm when you look at the damage we're doing to our world it is a reflection of the damage we're doing to ourselves within ourselves the sort of spiritual desert that <laughs> exists on earth today which you know is is shrouded in what often people call spiritual bypassing where you know there were a lot of people practicing religion but not very many people practicing spirituality where because to me spirituality is a is a deeper relationship with spirit rather than you know a religion with a, a god or a goddess or a religious book or a priest or a rabbi you know the spirituality for me is our deep relationship with ourselves and and our consciousness and you you, you touched on earlier about talking about psychedelics you know psychedelics and and have been for many cultures for thousands of years uh, a doorway into uh, the exploration of our consciousness who we are at our true selves at our, at our center we have no idea what our consciousness is we don't know why it's here how it got here we don't even understand how we form the words that come out of our mouths and how we're able to manipulate a staggering pyramid of symbols uh, <laughs> every single minute of every single day how we transmit knowledge through words and you know the human uh, mind and consciousness is incredible um, and I think that we've forgotten how to explore that aspect of ourselves and we've spent too much time over the last century looking outward and obsessing with the outside and i really hope that you know we are able as people to to explore more of that inner world and you know meditation mindfulness psychedelics uh really are the you know not not necessarily the answers for all but they are certainly an opportunity to do that with regards to these inner journeys um what kind of things are you doing on a daily or weekly or monthly or yearly basis to to sort of expand who you are as a person because it sounds like you've been through you know quite a journey of of self discovery with many twists and turns and many many mountains and many valleys <laughs> what kind of things do you have have worked for you to sort of help you push beyond those sort of limiting self beliefs all those all those belief systems that that really no longer serve you so many things and i have to touch on what you said and ultimately you know i think what we're lacking is that just oneness we are all one and when we close our eyes, we can feel that energy that connects us. And I just hope more people understand that like it is oneness that will really help us just see each other more and understand with empathy and love as the foundation that we are all connected. Um, my own journey has been truly one of many ups and downs. And going back to childhood, I remember going into my room many different times and just finding self-help books on my bed and thinking, oh, mom bought books that she doesn't want to read and now I'm just getting them. But they were books that were meant for me because my parents knew I was going through something difficult. But as a kid, you didn't realize they knew exactly what was going on. And so it started around 12 where I, I, I stepped into the self-help world. And I know for some people it's too woo-woo and it doesn't you know serve a purpose for them. But I find different authors have really helped me open my brain and 
Neil Donald Walsh conversations with God, which is not about God, but the voice inside of us that knows everything. We just don't trust it enough. Um, Eckhart Tolle, Power of Now, A New Earth, opened my brain up on other levels. I have a shaman who um, is based out of Mexico, and I've done work with medicine, um, although some people would call it other things. I call it medicine, and it is based with psychedelics. Plant medicine. Yes, plant medicine, based with psychedelics. In 2016, I went on an 800-mile hike, which is 1,200 kilometers along the coast of the West Coast. Pacific Crest Trail is what the the trail is called, and it's what Reese Witherspoon did in the movie Wild, or the real woman Cheryl Strayed did, and it actually is about 2,400 miles. I'm not sure what that converts to, so I did a third of it over 45 days, and when you are put into the wilderness with nothing but your backpack, and you have to learn how to survive, you go through a very big transformation of spirit, mind, and body, and you do not come out the same person that you went in, and I knew that going in, which was incredible, but more than anything, I have to give, you know, my travel has been huge and fundamental. I've traveled to every continent, including Antarctica. And when you see the world and you meet people that are different than you and they speak different languages and you, you actually don't speak the same language, but you can communicate with them and you understand them and you see the joys that exist in the slums of Africa and you see the pain that exists in the richest parts of the South of France you realize how we are all truly connected. And the more things that we get so consumed by, the farther we get away from that connectedness and ourselves and then the people around us. And I have two friends that are soulmates, Stacy and Bianca, and they opened my eyes up to travel and they've been my adventure buddies for many chapters of my life. And without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. I'm eternally grateful to both of these women for unlocking parts of myself within me that I didn't even know were there to heal. And then ultimately, as Gloria Steinman so eloquently puts it, help other people heal. Um, Her quote is, the final step of healing is helping other people heal through their traumas. I think that, you know, while this is plant-based news, and I think most people expected us to just talk about veganism, Quite the contrary. This podcast is, is is a lot of everything else and some plant-based news. <laughs> Amazing. I love it even more. And I think that that's, it's so important because it is all so interconnected and woven together. And the more that we let our minds wander and be bored and get off of social media and play in nature and try new foods that we thought might be gross because they weren't what we were programmed to think of when we were kids, the more we're going to find answers to questions that we all have about the purpose of life and why we're here and and what it all means because every day you know just this moment right now is a miracle and i say that coming from a very you know spiritual not religious place and the more that we give gratitude every day for just waking up and having breath and being able to have another opportunity to do something today the more we realize that it's all magic and it's all wonderful. And I'm still looking for the right word to explain it to as many people as possible as I journey through my own book writing, um, because I want to get as many people on board with this as possible, but it's incredibly beautiful and healing for me to connect with people like you, Robbie, um, you know, who live across the ocean and other people in other parts of the world to know that there are so many tribe members that think this way, that are doing the work, that are looking to get more people involved in the work. Um, because the work is not a nine to five. It's Mm. an every day, all the time 
just joyful, peaceful experience of, of going, this is who I am and this is who I'm going to be. But more than anything, this is who I want to exist as in this world and having this greater mission to leave this planet better than how we all came into it. Mr. Barapal, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. And it's been great to hear your stories. And, and I'm looking forward to doing a, a part two, because uh, there's lots more to talk about. So, um, much, I feel like, so much. I feel like we could do another full hour talking about personal development and there's, there's lots more to say. But before I let you go, um, I always like to ask my guests this uh, one last question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig... <laughs> obviously you're not going to eat the pig because you're a vegan. Um, if I could give you one vegan dish, one music album and one book, what would you take with you? Okay. My one vegan dish would have to be vegan sushi. I just love the texture, the bite, the flavor, uh, like nori or seaweed with rice and then like some delicious vegetables that basically taste like real sushi does the job really well for me. Plus I feel like it's light. So on an island, you wouldn't feel super heavy after eating it. My one album would be something Fleetwood Mac. Um, I love the song Dreams. I think it's choice. just so amazing and witchy and beautiful in all the best ways. Mm-hmm. And the one book that I would have with me, was that the last part? That was it. It would probably be mm, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle or A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Both of those books are just so fundamental to my development and he does such an incredible job translating language that is not words into words, um, mm. that is more about consciousness and ego and ridding yourself of the things that are not actually a part of us that we identify and cling to. Um, and I think it would just be the ultimate way to remind yourself that like a boat might never come, but you're actually living in paradise. So why are you so worried about getting out of here? <laughs> <laughs> you know I, lo- I love that amazing well it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and to get to know you a little bit more um i'm looking forward to following all your travels and adventures and i'll put all your links uh, in the show notes below thank you so much for joining me thank you so much for having me it's really been a pleasure and a joy speaking to you and hearing your thoughts as well i know as the host you know everyone's like robbie said this already but i'm like i want to hear robbie say it every time <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next time with more fashion, veganism, health, food, technology, animals, and everything in between.